BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy last year by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and producing natural gas with fewer emissions in the Permian Basin. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. I'm Michelle Goldberg. I'm Ross Douthat. I'm David Leonhardt, and this is The Argument. This week, will President Trump survive 2019? Either he wins or he goes to prison, right? Then we hold Ross's feet to the fire over his column that broke the internet. I was trying to make what I didn't think was a ridiculously controversial argument. And finally, a recommendation. It's amazing to be at a stage when playing with my kids for hours indoors is actually fun. President Trump's allies are in a growing state of alarm. The attitude toward him among many Republicans here in Washington is somewhere between glum and glummer. Michael Cohn helped Robert Mueller's investigation. This is a smoking gun. New clues in the Mueller probe. Is it winding down or up? The best evidence might be the fact that Trump is having trouble filling top jobs like chief of staff. As the Mueller investigation continues and Democrats gain subpoena power in the House early next year, the president's legal problems are likely only to grow. You can even make a bet on whether Trump will finish his first term. The markets are giving him less than a 70 percent chance of doing so. Today, we're going to ask whether those odds are too kind to Trump. Is his presidency, in fact, doomed? Let me start by listing the problems facing the White House, and this won't even be a complete list. There's the question of Russian collusion. There's the question of obstruction of justice. There are Trump's business dealings in Russia. There are the emoluments cases and whether Trump is profiting from the presidency. There are his extramarital affairs and the apparent campaign finance violations to cover up those affairs. Wait, can I add one? There is also the New York Attorney General civil lawsuit into his foundation, which also implicates all of the oldest children. Excellent point. Right. Which to me, my only point is that there is like so many that you can be following this stuff very closely and still lose track of one or two. Yep. All of which begs the question, Michelle, is this the beginning of the end for President Donald J. Trump? I guess it depends on what you mean the end is, right? I mean, I still, you know, I wrote in my column, we're going into a 2020 election where the stakes for Trump might well be either he wins or he goes to prison, right? Because there's this five-year statute of limitations on the campaign finance violations that his own Justice Department believes that he, you know, is kind of implicated in this felony with his lawyer, Michael Cohen. And so the only reason that it seems like he's not being indicted is because of this Department of Justice internal policy that you can't indict the president. So usually... If a president seemed to be clearly implicated in criminal activity and that criminal activity is the reason that he became president in the first place, I mean, that's kind of what the impeachment mechanism is there to is there for. But obviously, kind of like the Electoral College, right, the Electoral College was supposed to protect us from people like Trump. That was actually maybe its only legitimate function. But our partisanship and kind of polarization is such that it can't serve that function anymore. And I think that impeachment is sort of the same, right? So he's not going to be impeached. We're going to march towards this horrible smash mouth election that's this existential 
battle where the stakes are not just does Trump get to be president, but does Trump get to continue to walk free among us? And I mean, it's just he's like a a cockroach, right? I mean, everything is burning around him, but it seems like he's will survive it all. I guess what feels different to me now is it does really seem that that his allies think the odds of him not surviving have gone up, right? So uh, I cited the the odds. Who knows how meaningful they are or not. But but people are saying no to the chief of staff job. It just feels like there are a whole bunch of signs, including senators being a little more willing to defy him on Yemen policy, on judges. It just feels like his, the people who have been his allies are now starting to wonder, wait a second, is is are we actually going to get to 2020? Let me ask you bluntly, Ross, if you were a betting man, and I'm not saying you were, what would you think about the odds saying there is a 30% chance he won't survive the term? Which side of that bet would you take? I mean, I'd cut it to like 20%, but I think that that's about the right zone. Um, but I think that, that that zone encompasses two possible scenarios that could actually end his presidency. One is just an extraordinary accumulation of things like the charge that he broke campaign finance law, right? If you get to like five or six different situations where you have prosecutors basically saying, if he weren't the president, we would indict him, then I think you can imagine the Democrats feeling like they're sort of forced into impeachment and his political standing goes low enough that you could imagine some Republicans going along with it, especially if you get a recession, right, which is sort of the, the the coup de grace potentially for a Trump presidency. Or you could have the thing that we talked about a bit last week, which is an actual outcome of the Russia investigation that proves collusion in a way that I don't think the Russia investigation has proved to date. But Ross, do you think that if there actually was like hard, irrefutable proof of collusion, that that would turn a significant number of Republican senators? I mean, I think it depends what we're defining as collusion. But what I define as collusion, where there's evidence that Trump and people close to him cooperated with Russian intelligence in the use or dissemination of stolen materials, like the scenario that I, I think I spun in last week's episode where, you know, it comes out that Russian intelligence or WikiLeaks gave the Trump campaign proprietary data from the Clinton campaign, which they then put to use. I think something like that could break Republican support for him, again, especially if it's combined with a shift in the economic climate that undercuts undercuts a piece of his support. What I don't think can break it is the situation we have right now where you have a lot of a lot of evidence of incredibly sleazy behavior that we're not sure if it rises to the level of a crime and you have one criminal accusation that you know runs into the problem that we established in this country in the late 1990s that a president could be widely assumed to be guilty of a crime and people that related to covering up his sex life and people basically shrugged and said, well, that doesn't rise to the level of impeachment. I think the Clinton precedent here, j just for the Stormy Daniels stuff, is an actual problem for people who think, you know, Trump is a criminal, therefore we must remove him from office. I've heard that argument a couple of times and I'm always sort of, I mean, I believe that you believe that, but you're the first person I've heard make that argument that I actually believe it's made in good faith because part of the outrageousness of what Trump did was that he defrauded the electorate, right? I mean, I feel like the prosecutors make that case in 
Cohen's sentencing memorandum that these campaign finance violations were meant to cover up something of like significant public interest and to kind of darkly sway the results of the election. And given, you know, his almost flukishly small margin of victory, something like this likely did make a difference. I mean, anything could have made a difference. And so it goes to the very heart of his legitimacy as president. I think there are obvious differences. Yes. At the same time, I think the details of whether it's definitely a crime are a lot more ambiguous than a case where Clinton was just sort of clearly perjuring himself and everybody admitted it. And I also think, look, underlying the Clinton case was the fact that Bill Clinton was a sexual predator who probably raped Juanita Broderick. And there, I mean, there, there was a cascade of underlying stuff in the Clinton case that just got brushed aside under the operating principle that a president committing a crime to cover up sexual malfeasance wasn't impeachable. If you want me to make the case that the Clinton stuff was worse than the Trump stuff, I think it's not that actually that hard to make it. It, it just seems like the precedent of, you know, committing crimes to cover up sexual malfeasance isn't impeachable. That's that's something that was established in the late 1990s, wrongly, in my view, but it sort of was established. Yeah, but Ross, the problem I have with that is that our standards for these things don't stay fixed forever in time. I mean, it was also established that we could have presidential candidates who uh, had sex with a lot of women who weren't their wives. Um, JFK established that precedent, but we didn't keep it. And so standards... But you guys established... No, but you guys established the precedent, not you personally, but like American liberals and the Democratic Party established this precedent within our political lifetime. So to ask Republicans to break with their own voters in order to repeal that precedent when it was never repealed for Democrats, it's a big ask. Yeah, I understand that's, that. That's all, all I'm right? saying is, in retrospect, I think our standards for president's behavior should change. And I think we look at Clinton's behavior differently. And I agree with you. It's a hard ask because the standards changing from one party to another in a relatively short amount of time. But I mean, goodness, that's not the only thing that we have on Trump. And I, I also agree with you. I, I, look, I've said before, I don't think Democrats should impeach him because I don't think it's going to persuade people. But I do think we see growing signs that some of his allies are really worried that it's going to cost them politically. Look, I'm not predicting his downfall, but I think that things in politics can change more quickly than we realize. And I think Trump is really skating on thin ice. I think if his approval rating falls and it won't necessarily take a recession even a little bit more, you could start to see people abandoning him. And we learned in Watergate that when people start to abandon a president in their own party, it can flip fairly quickly. And I think that is entirely possible in 2019. I think that the story you're telling is compatible with him becoming extraordinarily unpopular, politically weak, and effectively abandoned by large parts of his party without getting to the the lift of impeachment and removal from office. I think to get to impeachment and removal from office, you need something to happen that drives him down into the 20s in his approval rating, which is where Nixon ended up. And the last time we had a president with approval ratings in the 20s, it was George W. Bush in certain polls late in his presidency. And that had everything to do with the Iraq war and then the financial crisis. It had to do with sort of catastrophes that were seen as maybe partially caused by his presidency, but not sort of just bound up with the man himself, whether people liked him 
or disliked him. And that's what we haven't had with Trump. We've had a strong economy. We've had continue, continuations of existing wars, but no new wars, no huge terrorist attacks or disasters and so on. And I, I just tend to think that absent the true game-changing Mueller revelation, you need some shift like that where a part of Trump's base says, this is a terrible situation, and so why not, why not remove him? Well, let's end here. Now that we see some cracks in Trump's support or more cracks, I guess I'm interested in what each of you is rooting for. So that's not what you think is going to happen. It's not even the advice you would give to the Democrats or the Republicans, but it's what you want to happen. And I'll go first. I mean, I am rooting for Donald Trump to walk into the Oval Office one day and uh, announce that he's resigning, um, because I think that's how dangerous it is to have a president who is unfit for the office. And I recognize that that might actually improve the Republicans' chances of winning the White House again in 2020, which I'm not in favor of. But I still think the Trump presidency is an emergency on a scale that the country doesn't always acknowledge. And so that's what I'm rooting for. What are you each rooting for? You know, I'm, I'm in about the same place. Like, I would support a situation where basically Trump resigns in exchange for a pardon from Mike Pence, even though that would, like you said, you know, let the Republican Party off the hook and let Trump evade justice um, just to get rid of him, to have him not be there anymore. Although, barring that, I'm rooting for him and his family to end up in prison. And ultimately, the true best case scenario is that we find out that not only was he in collusion with Russia, but so was Mike Pence, whose hands aren't clean in any of this. And then we finally get our first female president, Nancy Pelosi. I'm not rooting That's for amazing. That. That's amazing. <laughs> that is a great that's, scenario. That's... But I'll confess I am not rooting for the change of party through impeachment. <laughs> no, that's no, that's that's fantastic. I'm gonna give an, an even wilder scenario to root for, which is that having spent this segment suggesting that the Bill Clinton precedent makes it hard for Democrats to persuade Republicans that this time they should remove a president. I would not be unhappy at all if suddenly a swath of Donald Trump's religious conservative supporters – and I'm thinking of you know Franklin Graham and Jerry Falwell Jr. and figures like that especially – suddenly had what you might call a come-to-Jesus moment and recognized that they have this amazing opportunity before them to basically say, you know what? We were right about Clinton and the Democrats are right about Trump. We shouldn't have presidents who pay off porn stars after they have affairs with them. And we can support his removal and get President Mike Pence and the theocracy we've always dreamed of, parentheses, kidding, and that Trump ends up removed from office because a chunk of his evangelical supporters um, give up on politically convenient hypocrisy and decide to return to the convictions that animated them when they were trying to remove Bill Clinton. Um, I'd be I'd be all for that, and I'd all be all for a Pence presidency under those circumstances. So we have agreement. Although I think Michelle and I are putting huge asterisks next to our endorsement of President Mike Pence. <laughs> uh, we promise to return to the story in 2019, and we promise to also talk about other things because I think it's going to be hard to escape this story next year. Now we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back.
look around your business and see inefficiency everywhere. So you should know these numbers. 37,000, the number of businesses which have upgraded to the number one cloud financial system, NetSuite by Oracle. 25, NetSuite just turned 25. That's 25 years of helping businesses streamline their finances and reduce costs. 1. Because your unique business deserves a customized solution, and that's NetSuite. Learn more when you download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist absolutely free at netsuite.com matter. That's netsuite.com matter. Hey there, it's Ira Glass from This American Life. And the very first place that you can get the newest episodes of our podcast, it's a full day and a half before they appear anywhere else online, is the New York Times audio app. In the app, you also find the best of our archive, hundreds of episodes, plus This American Life shorts, which are handpicked stories for when you want something, you know, short, that's only at the New York Times audio app. You can download it at nytimes.com slash audio app and subscribe to start listening. We are back. A column that Ross wrote last week got a whole lot of attention. It was called Why We Miss the Wasps. WASP, of course, being an acronym that means White Anglo-Saxon Protestant. And WASP is also something of a shorthand for the old Northeastern leadership class represented by the late George H.W. Bush. More than 1,300 Times readers posted comments on the column. At one point, it was generating so much online discussion and criticism that when I looked at Twitter, one of the trending topics was Ross Douthat. People are just freaking out about the piece. Ross Douthat was very, very honest, I thought. The stereotypes are so noxious, whether they're like good or bad. it's, It's yucky. Like, I find it all very confusing. We wanted to bring a version of this debate to you all. Our colleague Mara Gay, who was part of the editorial board, read the piece and had some thoughts about it. So we invited her to come on and talk with Ross about the column. Here are Ross and Mara. So, Ross, what were you trying to say with your column? (laughs) I was trying to make what I didn't think was a ridiculously controversial argument, which is that America had a more elitist, less meritocratic establishment in the past that was basically dominated by a pretty narrow group of somewhat incestuous families from the Northeast who we call the WASPs. And that this establishment had some virtues and a lot of successes that our more meritocratic and sort of larger elite has struggled to recapture over the last 30 or 40 years since it's basically taken their place. I'm curious what you thought of the reaction. Do you kind of get why people were furious as they were? Um, I mean, I think the biggest reason was that people read a column that sort of praises the wasps as basically praising white supremacy and white hegemony and basically saying that we need to get back to a, you know get back to an era when it was just white men running foreign policy and then linked to that i think was a kind of misunderstanding of what i meant by wasps because i had you had a lot of people saying one that you know well Donald Trump is a, you know, some kind of Protestant and white and so on. And, you know, Congress is still full of white men and so on. So what are you talking about? The wasps have declined. We're still ruled by wasps and they're and they're terrible. And then linked to that, I think, was a an interpretation of the American past where the wasps were sort of extended to include basically every 
upper-class white Protestant or every white Protestant period. And I think the internet is a place where when you're making a sort of deliberately provocative argument, you often need to do more to explain yourself. So I think the column would have benefited by explaining why the wasps were sort of distinct among the various mostly white elites that America had in the past. Um, but also – and also it would have been benefited more from what I tried to do in the follow-up column, which was making or trying to make a distinction between diversity and meritocracy and basically saying it was a, it was a good thing that the American elite became and continues to become more diverse. Right. But the way that we did that by basically saying or I, in my view sort of pretending that you could sort of create a deserving elite in every generation through SATs and so on might have been a mistake or at least deserve some some criticism. So I certainly did not read the column as you upholding or romanticizing white supremacy. And I, I did not think that's where you were trying to go. I did read the column as overlooking and being quite quick to overlook the white supremacy, not just the personal racial views of this group of people, but the policymaking and the profitability upon which white supremacy has kind of delivered this harvest to America's elites for years. And I don't think that we can separate that. And it's problematic to take the conversation out of the historical context and separate people who profited off of slavery for many generations or upheld it or didn't challenge it and then say, oh, but, you know, they instilled within their kids a, a virtue of, of serving their country. And I think this is not just about Southern planters, but I know because I am a reporter in New York that the history of New York City alone in New York City's elite is so deeply steeped in slavery. The Brooks Brothers, AIG, Barclays, Aetna, Lehman Brothers, Wachovia, J.P. Morgan. We could go on and on. So it's not a matter of vilifying these folks, but I do think I found it problematic to assign some kind of virtue to that group of people who all of a sudden have been forced to share power through something that's more meritocratic in recent years. And I actually think that's something to celebrate. So we might disagree on that, but but it's it's hard to swallow when you see that mentioned and then stuffed under the rug because it doesn't seem to fit a larger narrative of romanticization. Right. So so this get, I think this gets to what I guess is my question for you, right, which is you know, it's definitely true that at every moment in American history throughout the 18th century, 19th century, deep into the 20th century to be an American elite of any kind was to be implicated in some sense in the structures of white supremacy and obviously further back sort of the economic consequences of slavery. But that then raises the question of, well, does that mean that there's, you know, as Americans, we can't see anything admirable in any of those people? No, um, not at all. I, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, I just would really urge a historical reading of it for better and worse. So it's perfectly fine to say that, you know, George H.W. Bush was somebody who tried and sometimes failed, but mostly tried to bring a certain amount of decorum. It's it's absolutely true that he served his country and the military, and that's something to be celebrated. He sacrificed greatly. He nearly died. Those are all true. We can all say that. And it can also be true, right, that he ushered in 
with not just the Willie Horton ad, but frankly, the hiring of Roger Ailes as a senior advisor. He also helped usher in this horrific period in American politics that I know, you know, you and I, Ross, are both horrified by. Um, so both can be true. But I, I do think there's a, a tendency, and it's not certainly just you, I think there's a tendency to ignore the ways in which they were protected by white supremacy. George George H.W. Bush was, you know, against the 1964 Civil Rights Act. And again, in 1990, voted against a civil, you know, he vetoed a civil rights bill. So it's... Right. But but what I'm saying isn't, but isn't that an argument that he wasn't true enough to his WASP roots, right? If the, if the WASP political heritage of the early 20th century down to figures like, I mean, he's a Mormon, but an honorary WASP, you know, Mitt Romney's father in Michigan and so on, was to be this sort of pro-civil rights Republican. I guess this is part of why I was surprised by the reaction to the argument to some extent. There's a long-standing liberal narrative that says the WASP Republicans were the good Republicans and then, you know, the bad Republicans, the populists and Southern conservatives and so on sort of took over the party. But generally on issues of civil rights, they were good. Actually, my, my grandfather was an advisor to George Romney. My grandfather was African-American in Michigan and George Romney was a huge proponent of civil rights. George H.W., who also was a WASP, if we're defining it this way, right, mm -hmm. w was not. I mean, you and I definitely, I think, agree that there is a certain amount of responsibility or should be a certain amount of civic responsibility and civic duty that comes with privilege and with power, no matter who you are. And I think we might be losing that as a country somewhat. And, and that is that is also a concern to me. I take a little bit of issue with this notion that those are virtues that can be associated with this long tradition of, you know, very dignified, polite wasps who were so rooted in structures that disadvantaged and, and excluded women, Native Americans, Jews, Catholics, blacks from our democracy. And people so often are deluged with the romanticization of this past period. And for so many Americans, there's absolutely nothing to romanticize. Okay, but part of what's happened over the last 40 or 50 years, too, is that the extremely well-educated class to which you and I both belong has endorsed a story about itself in which its own powers and privileges and advantages are supposed to be justified, morally justified, in a way that the powers and privileges and advantages of the wasps or any other previous establishment were not. Can you give an example of that? Because I don't feel that way personally. My, my experience of elite education and elite culture has been that you are sort of taught from an early age that your success is earned and that you have been chosen from out of this incredibly large competitive sphere of people taking standardized tests and coming up with college resumes and so on. And that sort of the coin of the realm is ambition and you justify your elite status by your intelligence and your own achievements. And that's the way that an elite should be formed. And it's better than the old way and the people involved deserve what they get more than the old elite did. 
I couldn't agree with you more. I think you're right. It's a major problem that everybody thinks that they've earned every single piece of power or authority or status or success that they have. I guess I just would push back a little bit to say, and this is not to hold myself up by any means as more virtuous because that is that is not my argument here. But there are you're also, probably more, you're probably more virtuous. I don't that's, I don't know about that. Likely. But I don't know about that. But there are, but there are many of us who were also taught that what we have we have because we were fortunate enough to be born at a time into families who were able to provide us with education. I think there are Americans who understand that they have unearned privileges, which means that others have, by definition, unearned disadvantages, and that life isn't fair, and it's still actually not a true meritocracy. And I do think there's a a major issue with people in elite organizations and institutions believing that they and they alone are responsible for their success, as though their family wealth or their connections that they've made at universities or their race or their gender or any of these things didn't play a role or, or their citizenship being born in the United States. And I think that's that's a major issue. And I think that it unfortunately lets us off the hook when we talk about civic responsibility. And I agree. I mean, it's a problem. I'm glad we agree about that. Let me see if I can end us on a place of disagreement or, or see, see, if, <laughs> sure. see if we do disagree about this, right? Because one of the things I was trying to do with this provocation was to say that what I see happening on the political left a lot these days, that, that you can achieve a better elite through a kind of obsessive scrutinization of your own privilege, right? There's a sort of constant sort of moral self-scrutiny where you're constantly trying to be, I have to check my privilege here, I have to check my privilege there, I have to check my privilege there. And I guess what I'm throwing out is the possibility that maybe it's actually better to sort of own your privilege and say, I'm privileged, so what are my responsibilities to my fellow citizens? I think that's a little different from the sort of the language of checking your privilege and scrutinizing your privilege that I think is the big alternative among people who think, as we all should think, that our elite has some problems. You know, I actually agree with that. I would just add, though— We've spent so much time invested in narratives that romanticize wasps and that there very well may be certain virtues or lessons we could learn from them, just as we can learn lessons from any group of people. But I don't think that they have earned or deserve any special category in American life And I think there are a whole other host of historical characters, actually living and and dead, to whom we could ascribe far more virtue. One of my favorite characters is Sidney Howard Gay, who was a wasp. And he's really unknown, but he spent his entire lifetime publishing a abolitionist newspaper and helping hundreds of slaves escape. And he died essentially penniless. And I think there are so many stories like that. People from all walks of American life who have served their country, famous and not, white wasps and not. And I I just think it's time that we broaden our, our thinking about who we admire and respect and 
who we hold up as the shining examples of what an American should be. Well, I think ending with you praising a wasp abolitionist is a really good place. <laughs> sort of perfect, perfect union for, the, for a narrative of American history. So, Mara, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for having me, Ross. Michelle and I are now back with Ross, and it is time for our weekly recommendation, a way to give you a break from politics. This week is my turn, so here goes. My recommendation, are you both ready for it? Go Nuts for Donuts. Uh, That is a board game that I've begun playing with my family. Here's how it works. The goal is to accumulate donuts, uh, which are worth points, but the only way to get them is to be the only person requesting a given donut. So what's great about it is you have to learn how to think the way other people are not thinking, which happens to be, I think, a very valuable lesson for children today. So my question for you, Michelle and Ross, is are you board game players? You know, Mike, so my kids are little, right? My kids, um, you know, my son is in first grade, my daughter's in preschool. And we've just reached like the board game slash card game stage. And it is such a relief because I love those kinds of games and they're actually fun as opposed to playing with like toys and figures which I find like extremely draining it's amazing to be at a stage when playing with my kids for hours indoors is actually fun and here's the great thing about Go Nuts for Donuts. It actually involves some strategy. So it's not like shoots and ladders, which is a little bit mind-numbing. And yet your children will beat you sometimes, which is a nice thing about it. So that's, yeah, and that's that's the problem that I have. Like Michelle, our kids are young, so we've only taken a few forays into board game land. And as was true in my own family with me and my sister growing up, my kids don't seem to take losing that well. And some form of losing is inherent in most board games. And so we're still waiting to sort of cross that river into the zone where the possibility of loss or setback doesn't spoil the playing of the game. But so far, my experience of board games with my very little kids has been trying to play Candyland and having like that, you know, that moment where you land on the peanut brittle thing or whatever, and your your five-year-old <laughs> has to go back to the beginning, and it's just an emotional disaster that makes the whole board game not worthwhile. I had to make my son win at Uno because he will be about to win and then decide not to so we can keep playing. And I had to be like, no, don't pick more cards. Just put down your last card. <laughs> but there's this other game called race for the treasure which somebody gave to us for one of their birthdays it's a cooperative game it's basically set up so that you and the other players are all working cooperatively against this troll that that sounds perfect for the age of the internet too right <laughs> like yes if, if only twitter worked that way <laughs> we'd all be set well i recommend go nuts for donuts it's cheap you can order it and it will arrive in time for the holidays, and it is good for all ages, although you do have to be able to accept losing in order to play. Before we go, I want to tell you that we're putting together a special episode for the start of the year, and we want to hear from you. We want you to give us an assignment. Ask us a question that we haven't yet answered on the show. It can be about politics, religion, it can be about the future or the past. You name it. Give us a call at 347 915 
347-915-4324. That's 347-915-4324. Thank you, as always, for listening. If you like what you hear, please leave us a rating or review in Apple Podcasts. This week's show is produced by Alex Laughlin for Transmitter Media with help from Caitlin Pierce. Our executive producer is Greta Cohn. We had help from Tyson Evans, Phoebe Lett, Ian Prasad Philbrick, and Freddie Chavez. Our theme was composed by Allison Layton Brown. Special thank you to Kaiser Health News. We will be back next week and look forward to talking to you then. Does it have a board? Does it have a board or not? <sighs> Does it have a board? I guess it doesn't have a full board. Um, if it doesn't have a board, man, it's a okay. card Okay. What do I need Fake to redo? News. Fake news. Ready to set off on your captivating journey into the botanical world? NYBG's brand new online education program, Plant Studio, offers bite-sized courses tailor-made for you to pursue your passion as a budding plant person. Guided by professionals, dig into gardening, botany, floral design, landscape design, and more. Grow your skills with online learning your way. Register at nybg.org.